I think what we see is that God has been so faithful to us. I was reflecting this morning, one of the, the statistics that um, I was told before we planted the church that uh, 85% of church plants fail within the first five years. And by God's grace, we've hit the five-year mark, and we've not failed, we're thriving. And uh, that's all because of the grace of God. And, uh, and I'm, I'm so excited about what God has done in the life of this church, and there's been ups and downs, and life is not perfect here, but we have seen God moving, as we saw there, just a small glimpse, listen, in powerful ways in the life of his people. And that's really what the church is all about. The church is all about God's people being transformed and molded into the image of God's son, Jesus Christ. And we're praying for more of that. And so uh, I want to encourage you along these lines. We're celebrating five years of God's faithfulness. And uh, we're closing off this morning the book of Jonah. And I believe in the sovereignty of God, the divine timing of God. It's a very fitting close as we celebrate. Because the objective in the last uh, uh, two verses of chapter 4 is to reflect upon God's grace and God's faithfulness. And then to turn and reflect that grace and faithfulness. So turn in your Bibles to Jonah chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible this morning, rushers are going to walk to the front here, and they're going to turn and walk all the way towards the back. Uh, you can feel free just to slip your hand up in the air. We would love to get a Bible into your hand. We'll make sure one gets across the aisle to you. And if you do take one of those Bibles, that's about page 661, 662 that you're turning to to find Jonah. And in Jonah chapter 4, uh, we've been given a powerful reminder that it's possible to know, to enjoy, to experience, to love, and to praise God for his great grace, for his saving work in an individual's life. And it's possible to have all of that, to be enjoying all of that, and then in a moment to lose sight of all of that and to turn your back on God. And as I think back across the past five years of our church, it's possible that we as a church, and maybe you as an individual, you've seen God at work in your life, you've seen God using people and using his word and his spirit is is shaping you and challenging you and molding you, but one of the things that you need to be aware of is it's possible to enjoy the grace of God in your life and then to be like Jonah and move away from the grace of God and in fact resent the grace of God. It's possible for us as a church, as we've experienced this faithfulness, to move to a place like Jonah, to become complacent or expectant of the grace of God and no longer cherish and love the grace of God. It's possible to want the grace of God for ourselves, but not want to reflect the grace of God to others. And that's one danger as a church, as we continue to grow and thrive, we must be aware of. In fact, I think one of the deadliest beliefs in the Christian community is that God exists for me. There are many in the church whose faith is built upon this ground. That belief in God is a resource to be drawn upon to grant to me the picture-perfect life. It's ultimately at its heart a self-absorbed kind of faith that keeps people in a state of immaturity and renders them effectively useless for the kingdom of God. We see growing in Christ is about moving beyond this kind of immature faith, insufficient faith, if I can put it like that, and cultivating a faith that is strong and vibrant and healthy. The kind of faith that is increasingly more God-centered and less and less self-centered. It's increasingly more Christ-absorbed and less and less self-absorbed. It's increasingly more others-centered and less and less self-centered.
This is the kind of faith that understands God's grace, that intentionally goes back and saturates itself and soaks in God's grace, that reflects upon God's grace, that loves God's grace and is moved by that grace to go out and faithfully share the grace of God. As I say this, I, I, I say this knowing that as I look at my own heart, I see the roots of self-absorption and self-centeredness, and I recognize that growing, look, growing in love and growing in grace towards others is a lifelong journey. Growing in selflessness and growing in grace is not easy, but loving the lost and going after the lost, we see in this passage, is at the very heart of the heart of God. So part of cultivating this kind of healthy and growing and vibrant faith is to become well acquainted with the heart of God. It's to look at the heart of God and reflect upon the heart of God and to go out and reflect that heart of God to the world around us. The questions we need to be asking ourselves is how does God feel about people in this world? How does God feel about the lost? And what does God want our church, what does God want the church to be doing about that problem? God has Jonah right where he wants him. He's got him in the crosshairs. He's set this magnificent trap for Jonah, and Jonah's walked right into it. Jonah has stationed himself outside the city of Nineveh. He is looking for God's judgment. He is longing for God's judgment. He set himself up a little uh, shack that is inadequate to provide shelter from the sun and from the wind. God gives him this plant, grows it, miracle grow overnight to give shade and to relieve the discomfort of Jonah. And God overnight causes a worm. He appoints a worm to eat that plant, destroy the plant. And then he appoints the sun to beat upon the head of Jonah and the wind, the mighty eastern wind to come and assault Jonah. And God has said to Jonah, Near the end of chapter four here, as Jonah is angered by the grace of God, he's angered now that God has seen fit to take away his plant, and God has asked him in verse nine, God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And God now has laid bare the heart of Jonah, and he's going to continue to pull at his heart right now and give these final words, these final thoughts. And what we see flowing off this page is the heart of God for the world. Let's read these last two verses, verse 10 and 11 together, and then we'll pray. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? God, we bow before you, recognizing that your word is holy, it is pure, it is perfect, and it is powerful. And Father, we thank you for these past five years of seeing your grace and your faithfulness. We thank you, Lord, for how you're growing and changing us, how you're maturing us, how you're saving uh, many in our midst. And Lord, we pray as we look towards the future that our heart right now, Lord, would be captivated and captured by your heart. We pray, Lord, that this would be a time where you meet with us powerfully, 
through your word and by your spirit, Lord, that you would grip our hearts and change our hearts. Would you give us, Lord, a thirst and a hunger, not only for your righteousness, Lord, but to reflect that righteousness to the world around us. We pray this in the mighty, strong, precious name of Jesus. Amen. As we look at the heart of God, I want you to notice a few things, and, and you can tag on the end of each of these um, um, points. There'll be three points. Just tag onto the end in your mind, and so should I, okay? So here's the first point. Um, God, here's God's heart. He places a staggeringly high value on life. Just tag onto the end there, and so should I. Now remember, Jonah has attributed zero value to the Ninevites, I mean, he hates the Assyrians. He thinks that they are utterly worthless. What he wants for them is the judgment of God, not the grace of God. To Jonah, they're worthless. There's no point in saving these people, God. Look at how wicked, look at how evil they are. They deserve your punishment and they deserve your wrath. He's lost sight of who he is, of what he deserves, and he wants God's grace for himself while he wants God's judgment for others. And God here is teaching Jonah an incredibly powerful lesson. He doesn't just value Jonah and Israel. That's what he wants uh, uh, Jonah to understand here. Jonah believes that God's heart is only for the nation of Israel. It's only for people like Jonah. But God is making it clear, no, from the very beginning, my heart has not been just for the nation of Israel. God's compassion does not stop there. It doesn't stop, by the way, with you. It doesn't stop with your family. It doesn't stop with this church or even this nation. Jonah teaches us something so powerfully important. God's passion is for the world. You see, Jonah, do you see this? Do you make this connection? Jonah is all about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jonah is all about weaving the redemptive thread of scripture that began at the very beginning of Genesis in Genesis chapter three with the promise made to Adam, which was unfolded through the covenants of God to Abraham, to Moses, to David. From the very beginning, God wanted it to be known that his glory was to rule and reign over the earth, that he was, listen, he was gonna be saving people from every tribe, tongue, language, from all the nations. God wanted to redeem and ransom a people unto himself. But Jonah's got so tunnel visioned and how he believes the grace of God ought to be applied, he's lost sight of the original plan of God. And so God, to draw this out of the heart of Jonah, he has to present this powerful contrast between the heart of Jonah and the heart of God. He presents this contrast between the concerns of Jonah and the concerns of God. And he does so, we've seen this last week, through this living parable with this plant. God goes right to the heart of what Jonah values most and then he wants to staggeringly contrast it with what God values most and to drive this point home, he goes, hey Jonah, let's just talk about the plant for a moment. Jonah's angry and he's essentially told God, God, it's not right that you would take this plant from me. How dare you take away this grace that you have given to me? He's so angry Rather than repenting, he says, God, just kill me. If this is who you are, God, I'd rather be dead than work for you. And so God says to Jonah in verse 10, "Um, Jonah, you pity the plant 
And, and notice what he says here to make this so abundantly clear. Jonah, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. Jonah, you had nothing to do with this plant. You didn't plant it. You didn't water it. You didn't nourish it. You didn't make sure that it growed. You gave no thought to the plant. I brought the plant into existence. It came in a night and was gone. How, Jonah, are you so superficially attached to this little plant? You know, the, the, the key here to understanding what's going on is, is this, that Jonah's not really in love with the plant, is he? No, he's in love with himself, right? The plant, he loves the plant because of how it benefited him. He is self-absorbed. Let me ask you this morning, what's your plant? What's the comfort, the thing in your life that you are so absorbed with, the thing that you love more than anything, the thing, listen, that captures and captivates your heart, the thing that if God was to take away from you, you would say, how dare you, God? Now listen, Jonah, here's what God says. You have superficial and selfish attachment to a plant. A plant, can you just get the, can you get the contrast there for a minute? Look what God says. You have attachment and love for a plant. Why should I not pity, listen to this, 120,000 people? (laughs) Jonah, you love plants more than you love people. Jonah, you love you and your own comfort more than you love people who are perishing. And I love this. You love this too? And much cattle. <laughs> like, what? God loves cattle? No, you want to know what the point is? God owns the cattle. Right? God owns the cattle on a thousand. God owns everything. All of creation is precious to God. And it's really quite simple when you look at this. Look, God says to him, I am the Lord. I am king. These are my creatures. I made them. I nourished them. I am the reason that they exist. I am the reason that they have grown. Should I not pity them? And listen, if the people go, the animals go, right? If God rains judgment upon the people, then the animals get the judgment too. And the message so powerfully comes across the page. Jonah, you value plants more than you value people. And the question that should be ringing in our minds is this. Do we do the same thing? Do we love the comforts of this world, the comforts of this life? Do we long for those things more than, listen, do we long for those things in our hearts more than we long for the heart of God? More than we long for what God longs for. More than we love what God loves. More than we're concerned for what God's concerned about. And this is such a powerful, powerful message for the church today. You see, there is a battle waged in my heart often. Often, I can tell you this, between what is comfortable and what is crucial. I feel the weight of what is comfortable and longing for those things and the things in this world, right? More sometimes than I, than I, than I long for what is critical for people. I, I, to my shame, there are times in my life, and you, you, look, just full disclosure, there are times in my life as a pastor where I just, I'd rather go in my house and relax for a little bit than talk to my neighbor on the street about the gospel. There are times in my life where I'm, just, I'm, 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 I'm more concerned about what's better for me right now than I am for, for this person who doesn't know Jesus Christ. And listen, isn't that the truth of all of our hearts? We're concerned more with what's comfortable for us than what's critical for others. 
And I want you to notice how God wants to highlight the value of these people in contrast to this plant. It should be obvious enough, right? I know we lived in a messed up society um, that values things they shouldn't value, but a plant versus people, and notice what he says here, 120,000 people is, by the way, that's a massive city by the standards of the day in Jonah's day. Like that, that is a massive city. That would be like the biggest city on earth at the time. This is like the center of the world in one sense because of how massive it is. And look at the value that God places, I love this, on a single human life. He knows the number of them. He knows that there are well over 120,000 people. By the way, archaeological evidence confirms that that is the case. The value of one life is greater than the value, know this, of all the riches in the world combined. Listen, the value of one life is greater than the value of the entire universe. Say, well, why would you say that? Listen to what Jesus says, okay? Here's an implication from the words of Jesus' statement. What does it value a man if he gains the whole world yet forfeits his soul? You see the implication there? You can have it all. You can have everything you ever wanted. You can have all the riches of the world. You could own the entire universe, and it profits you nothing if at the end of the day you lose your soul because your soul, a single soul, is infinitely more valuable than all the riches of this world. How often do we find ourselves living for the things of this world? Consider that for a moment. Here's what we know to be true biblically. The world and all that is in it will pass away. But every single human soul will live forever. Every person that you meet was created with the imago Dei, in the image of God. And thereby, listen, because God has created humanity in his image, unique amongst all of creation, he has intrinsic, intrinsic value. But beyond that, listen, it's not just intrinsic value, it's intrinsic infinite value. Every person you meet owes their entire existence to God. Listen. You say, well, why does God value these 120,000 wicked people? Every person who's ever been created, as David says in the Psalms, was knit together in their mother's womb by God himself. What do you think about that? God continues to sustain, according to Colossians 1, Jesus Christ sustains all of creation, meaning every human life. God's common grace is extended to every human life, right? The rain falls on the just and the unjust. Every one of those people has a future, listen to this, this is so powerful, of indescribable happiness or unfathomable loss. 120,000 infinitely valuable souls are living in the city of Nineveh. 130,000 people live in the city of Whitby. There are 700,000 people in the Durham region. There are 14 million people in Ontario. There are 36 million people in Canada. There is 7.4 billion people on the face of this earth and every single one has value to God because they were created in the very image of God. How's your plant? 
Wow. You pity the plant, Jonah? C.S. Lewis said these words. He says, the dullest and most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature, which if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship, or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. These are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Don't you love that? It is immortals we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. How powerful is that? Every person we interact with will last forever. They will live forever. The question is, where? Those neighbors, the family at the park, the family in your home, Parents on the sidelines, co-workers in the office, students around you at school, God values them so much. Every soul is valuable to God. If he values them, so should you and I. So let me just put it out there again for you and for my own heart. Are you valuing your comfort, your time, or your stuff more than you value souls that God has created? And one of the things we find is this. When we become selfish with our time, our energy, our efforts, what it does is it breeds more and more selfishness. When we isolate ourselves from others, we continue to remain isolated from others more and more so to ever-increasing degrees. So the contrast to that or the flip side of that is this, that you begin to grow in compassion. You say, how do I, how do I grow in this compassion? You grow in your compassion when you take the steps to reflect God's compassion. When you start doing the things that God has called you to do, to be hospitable, to be loving, to engage with those around you, it begins to become something that becomes normative in your life, and it actually stirs within you a greater passion for them, a greater degree of love for them. How many of us are more concerned with plants than people? Lord, help us, amen? Secondly, notice this. God deeply or cares deeply about their spiritual condition and so should I. Much of Jonah's frustration flows from some incredibly bad theology. That's usually the case, by the way. Um, did you notice what God says about the people of Nineveh here? It's so fascinating as he, as he puts this descriptor on these 120,000, notice this, persons who do not know their right from their left. I mean, that's, that's just odd to think about, right? Somebody mentioned to me that you should title this sermon The Stupid People of Nineveh, right? Who doesn't know their left hand from their right? You see, but there's important theological truth here. That's part of God's concern for these people. The fact that they don't know their left hand from their right has deep meaning, and God is using this in his rebuttal against the, the thinking and logic of Jonah to show why these people are so needy, why God cares so deeply about them, and it reveals to us their actual spiritual condition. Some people believe this simply means children, right? They're, they're ignorant to what their left and their right hand is. The problem is it doesn't square with what we know to be of the population of Nineveh. It, it's really, archaeological evidence shows us that there was likely about, oh, just over 120,000 people living in Nineveh at this time. Plus, when we look at the account of Jonah, what we see is that God is concerned from the greatest of them to the least of them, amen? 
I mean, this is this wholesale revival God has produced, and so God is driving this thought about all of the people in Nineveh, all of them, not just the children, all of them do not know their left from their right, so the question is, what is God talking about? Well, here's what God is talking about. This is referring to all those in the city who have absolutely lost their moral compass. They're so far off the reservation, they have no comprehension of true, biblical, God-oriented morality. You know, we use, don't we, left and rights to give people directions all the time. If I was to tell you how to get to my house, I'd say, you know, you got to go out of the parking lot and make a right, and you want to shoot across Ross and make a left, and when you get to Brock, and you're going to make another right, make a left, my house is the third one on the right, and if somebody doesn't know their left from the rights, what's going to happen pretty soon? They're going to be hopelessly lost. God is saying that these people are in complete moral confusion. He's not saying that they're morally innocent, okay? Don't get that picture in your mind at all. In fact, they have declared their own culpability, right? They've repented. They've asked for forgiveness. He's not saying that they're off the hook in any way, that they aren't deserving of God's judgment. They know they are. He's saying that these are people who are trapped. Listen, this is so important to understand the heart of God. They're trapped in their sin. They're unable to escape. They are without a hope unless, unless somebody intervenes. Do you see the picture? Unless somebody intervenes and shows them, and no, doesn't just show them, takes them into the right way. Jonah hated them for their moral perversion. He thought they were so wicked, they were undeserving, they were not worthy of God's salvation. I wonder how quick we are to hate those who are morally perverse and have lost their moral compass in our culture. God's response is to have compassion on such people. Look, we're, and let's be honest, right? We're living in such a morally confusing time, aren't we? And we're living in, in a time where it is morally acceptable for people to kill babies, We're living at a time where it's morally acceptable for you to forget about anatomy and determine your own gender based on how you feel. We're living in a time where what God says is unnatural, people say is normal and perfectly acceptable. And I would urge you as we look at the scriptures to understand this from the heart of God, now is not the time for anger and hatred. Now is the time for love and compassion. Their moral bankruptcy should cause us to be not enraged, but engaged. The Bible describes the human condition in some incredibly helpful and very graphic terms that should help us, if we rightly understand them, grow in our compassion for people around us. Listen to what the Bible says first. Our condition, the human condition, is described with this word, blindness. People are blind. In fact, Paul quotes, or excuse me, Paul says these words in 2 Corinthians 4, 4. He says, in their case, the God of this world has blinded, notice that, the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of God. I mean, do you see Satan's agenda here? He wants to keep people, prevent people, to blind people to seeing the glory of God and the light of the gospel. He keeps people in the dark, so it's helpful to understand this. Listen, from a theologically informed standpoint, notice this. People are blind, which means this. It's not a refusal to see. It's an inability to see. Isn't there a massive distinction between those two things? 
It's not like people, you know, it's not like you've walked up. Can you imagine walking up to a physically blind person and saying, why won't you just look at that, man? I'd like to, but I can't. Just grasp the spiritual condition and, and, and you will grow in your compassion. Reflecting on the human condition will help you grow. Isn't this true? In patience with people, in grace towards people, it will make you more caring and less condemning. Blindness, Christians, listen, blindness is real. There are people who cannot see. Secondly, look at this term the Bible uses for our human condition and our sinful condition. is slavery. People are slaves. And here's the verse that Jesus speaks these words in John 8.34. He says, Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you that everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. And by the way, that means, means everybody, all of the human condition is ultimately a slave to sin. And being a slave to sin means this, that you are ruled by another, does it not? You can't stop, just, you just can't stop doing something. You might be able to repress certain sins, but it will manifest itself in other areas of your life. It rules your life. Listen, people are in spiritual prisons where they are held captive by their sinful nature. They can't get out. It's like going to somebody in jail and, and telling them to break themselves out when they have no key and they have no resources. I can't, I'm trapped. This is the cell I'm in. It means that people may want to stop sinning, and I think this is the case for many people. They may want to stop sinning. They may not want to be a sinner, but they have no power to stop. And lastly, it gets worse. It gets worse, right? It's bad enough that we're blind. It's bad enough that we're slaves. Notice this. The Bible says we're dead. Ephesians 2 verse 1, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins. This is the human sinful condition. Spiritually dead, unresponsive to God, a corpse does not have the ability to bring itself to life. This is why Jesus said in John 6, that no one can come to the Father unless he draws them. No one can come excuse me, to me unless the Father draws him. Now, the biblical teaching on sin, wrongly understood and applied, can lead us to condemnation. It can lead us to harshness and a sense of human worthlessness. Like, come on, why don't you just get with it? It can lead to badgering people and beating people and harming people. There have been so many people who have left churches because they have been abused because of this kind of condemnation and harshness. Like Jonah, who believed that these people deserve destruction. His doctrine of sin had eroded his compassion for souls. But God saw their evil, right in verse one we see this in two of chapter one, he saw their evil and he has compassion on them precisely because they had lost this moral compass. These people are helpless and they're hopeless and they need the truth of the gospel. You know, it's, it's just, just imagine with me that you're barreling down the 401 and you hit everybody's favorite thing, a traffic jam, right? But, but instead, you're like, great, I have lots of time to spare. I'll just sit here for a few hours. Right? But you, as you're driving along, the traffic jam is just starting in front of you. And in fact, it's three lanes, and each lane is blocked by a single car in each lane, straight across. And you kind of, you, you slow up behind them, and you start, and you start wondering, what in the world's going on here? And part of you is starting to get frustrated, right? No, you're really patient when it comes to traffic jam, I'm sure. Right. 
you're looking at the cars, you're like, what's happening here? And so you start honking your horn. You know, maybe you roll down your window and you say a few really kind things, like, you know, let's go. We've got people, people to see, places to go. And, and, and all of a sudden, cars start piling up behind you, and everybody is, is blaring their horns. And so you decide to get out and figure out what's going on. And as you, you walk up to the first car, you stand and you, you, you knock on the door, and you're kind of frustrated. And you say, hey, 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 buddy, let's, I mean, what's, what's going on here? Let's move it along. And he looks at you. He rolls down the window, but he, he can't find the, 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 the spot where it should be. And so he's fiddling around. Finally, the window goes down, and he says, I don't know what happened. I was driving along, and all of a sudden, I couldn't see anything. I can't see right now. I can't see anything. I'm blind. I can't see. And then you, you go over to the next car, and the next car, you're like, okay, well, knock it on the window. Come on. Like, man, let, let's go. Let's get you going. And he shouts through the window as you peer through the window, I can't, I can't move. And you see that his hands are shackled behind his back, and he literally can't move his arms. And he says, somebody was in the back seat. I, I, I don't know what happened. They bound me here. I can't move. I can't go anywhere. And then, you, you know, you're kind of softening a bit, so you get to the next car, and you, you bang on the window, and you're, you're getting no response. You look a little closer, and the person is hunched over their steering wheel, and they're unresponsive because they're actually dead. But everybody behind you is getting angry and infuriated, and horns are just blaring, and people are screaming. But all of a sudden, in the moment, you have greater compassion because you understand what's really going on. You understand these people can't do anything. One is blind, one is bound, and one is dead. And sadly, there's a kind of Christianity that is angered with the sinful world and attacks it in condemnation and rails against it. And what we see in the heart of God is that God, first of all, vengeance belongs to the Lord. The Lord will repay all evildoers. That much we know. But God, as he looks at the world, before he sends his son back in vengeance and judgment, he has great compassion on sinners. I think of Jesus Christ who looked at the people of Israel and had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. They were going astray. Their moral compass was askew. And there's great hope for the world that lies not in shouting commands of condemnation from a distance, but in the power of a new life that is the gift of God's grace in Jesus Christ. There is hope for a lost world, and it comes through the gracious reflecting of the grace of God by the people of God. That's why the third thing in the heart of God is so important to see. He actively pursues rebels for his glory. I mean, isn't this the entire summary statement? This has been our subtitle for the book of Jonah. That God relentlessly pursues rebels all because of his grace. The entire story of Jonah is summed up in this one sentence. God goes after wicked, rebellious sinners. Because of his great love. God, right from the beginning of Jonah, has seen the plight of humanity, and he has sent a servant. He has sent forth his word. He has sent a messenger of truth into the heart of darkness to hold forth the blazing light of glory, of salvation that can be found only in him. His spirit begins to work amongst the people, opening the eyes of the blind, setting the captives free, raising the dead to life. The story of Jonah ultimately does it not culminate in Jesus Christ. 
In fact, flip in your Bibles to Luke chapter 11. Hold your spot in Jonah. In Luke chapter 11, verses 29 through 32, Jesus is speaking, and he speaks to the Pharisees, and the context is helpful to understand that they want a sign. Show us that you're really a prophet. Do something fancy. Do something miraculous like you've done in other places. And here's how Jesus responds to these hard-hearted Pharisees. When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, this generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. He goes on to say that the Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Jesus stands before these people who are declaring a sign, and he says, don't you get it? I am the sign. I'm the sign. You don't need to see something fancy. I'm the sign. I'm the messenger from God. I am the greater Jonah. I come bearing a message of truth, of life, of hope. I come bearing a message to set the captives free, to liberate them from darkness, to bring them into the kingdom of light. Jonah was in the belly of a fish for three days. Me, the son of man, will be buried in the earth for three days. And just like Jonah demonstrates to the people of Nineveh that God is a God of mercy and grace and salvation, so even more I will show people that I am the conqueror of death, that in me there is no need to fear, but there is only everlasting life and joy. There is one who has the power to save sinners. There is one who has the power to raise the dead and to set the captives free. His name is Jesus Christ, amen? And as he hung on the cross and he died for the sins of the world, all the sins of Nineveh placed on him, all of the sins of every person who would ever believe for all of time were placed on Jesus Christ and he suffered and paid the full amount. I love that. We sang that in confidence this morning, right? Now my debt is paid, is paid in full. He stayed buried for three days. He rose victorious from the grave. And everyone, listen, if you're in here this morning and you find yourself in this spiritual condition that I have described, that you are spiritually blind, that you are held captive by your sin, and that you are dead in your transgressions and sin, listen, today is a day of great hope for you because today, if you turn and look, there's life in a look, you look to Jesus Christ. You see your Savior paying for your sin. You see him rising from the grave. You see him declaring, it is finished. Victory is mine. You see him triumphing over the powers of evil. And you can say, I am now hidden. My life is hidden with Christ. I have been buried with him. I have died with him. And I have been raised to life in him. Amen? That can be you today. That can be you. Be like the Ninevites who repented of their sin and trusted that God was gracious to save. He is so, so gracious and he is mighty to save. You know, there are too many Christians 
Here's where it meets. Listen, those of you who are saved, listen. There are too many Christians who say they love Jesus but will not live like Jesus. The church is filled with them. The church is filled with people who say, I love Jesus, I'm a follower of Jesus, but refuse, refuse to live like Jesus. Instead, they, they live like Jonah, comfortable with the grace of God, comfortable with what God has provided them, comfortable, right, when it suits their needs, but the second God confronts them and calls them and presses them and commissions them and sends them, they say, whoa, God, that's asking a little bit too much. Picking up the cross and following Jesus seems too arduous, too messy, and too painful. YOLO. Life's too short, man. Like, like, are you kidding me? Live life now. That's the most foolish statement in the world, YOLO. That's a great foolish way of saying, I'm gonna live for me here and now. I'm gonna do what's right for me. I'm gonna live life to the fullest. I'm gonna love you know, what I wanna love. I'm gonna do my own thing. You know what the reality is? You don't only live once. You live twice. And the way you live now will matter for all eternity. Too many of us, let me enjoy the blessings of your grace, God, but don't ask me to go and share that grace. Let me do my thing, God. Don't ask me to sacrifice for your thing. God, give me a life of comfort. Don't ask me to live with greater compassion. Charles Charles Spurgeon said this really powerfully, and I'm going to let the weight of this sit. He says, "If if you have no wish for others to be saved, then you're not saved yourself. Be sure of that. Compassion means sharing a common passion with God. It means caring about lost people as God does. It means reflecting on the unique value of every person you meet understanding the infinite value of that soul, remembering the blindness, slavery, and death that plague the human condition. But don't stop, listen, don't stop with these convictions and these feelings of compassion that will flow out of them. We must, we must, we must move to action. This is not a time to sit on the sidelines. This is a time to be striving forward. This is a time to be getting off the bench, not watching, not watching, but being involved in what God is doing in the world. Get engaged in ministry. Be like Christ, not like Jonah. Listen, choose the company of those who are working rather than the comfort of those who are watching. Start praying for the lost with more intentionality. Start actively pursuing with greater intentionality the lost around you. Have them into your homes. Invite them in for meals. Get to know them. Stand on the driveway and talk to them. Engage them when you're standing at the fields and when you're in the park. I'm so thankful that, listen, I have heard testimony after testimony of how so many of you are already doing this, and I just want you to know I'm so blessed and so encouraged, but I want to say this to my heart and to yours. Let's excel still more. There's so, so much work to be done. This is not the time to retreat. Listen, I know the times are dark. Listen, but when the times are darkest, the blazing light of the gospel is the most powerfully glorious. 
This is not the time to retreat from the lost. This is the time to run to the lost. As you look at this, I wonder if you just see how God is weaving this story and bringing it to a close. I, I think this is one of the most abrupt endings of any book. I think it is the most abrupt. Isn't that crazy how it just kind of like stops and it leaves you like, really? Like, how about a conclusion? This is so powerful. Listen, I want you to hear this. God is making sure that Jonah knows that God gets the last word. When you argue with God, you lose. Okay? God gets the last word here, not Jonah. But it's more than that. The story remains unfinished. And it remains unfinished because every one of us is called to write the final paragraph. Because you are Jonah. And I am Jonah. What will Jonah do now? What will he do now that he's confronted with the truth of God's heart and compassion for the lost? What will he do now? What will you do now? Will those who have been the recipients of God's grace now go to the nations and reflect God's grace? That's the question. So let me ask you, what will your final paragraph look like? Let me ask us as a church. We've reflected upon the grace of God, right? God's faithfulness in five years. But listen, that is just the beginning. What is our final paragraph? What is our final chapter going to be like? How will that be written? Will it be written like Jonah, who became complacent, cold, and apathetic to the grace of God? Or will it be written with great passion, fervency, and fire for the good news of Jesus Christ? Imagine your future for a moment. Will it be filled with great regret because you have chosen to live selfishly for the pleasures and comforts of this world? Or will it be filled with great rejoicing that you selflessly laid down your life like your Savior to declare God's grace for sinners? Five years of faithfulness. Will our church retreat into comfort and complacency or will we reach into this community with compassion and care for their souls? Will we long for the things of this world or will we long for all the earth to know, to love, and to worship the only God and Savior, Jesus Christ? May our final chapter be one of urgent, intentional pursuit of Jesus Christ. May our final chapter be one of great growth and maturity. May our final chapter be one of longing for all the earth to know and love God in Christ Jesus. May our final chapter be one of reflecting God's grace to a lost and hopeless world, believing that we will see God do a mighty work through us as we lay down our lives to see those from every tongue, every tribe, and every nation gathered around the throne of heaven with voices joined in one mighty chorus to praise the God of glorious grace.